Welcome back to the Policy Corner podcast series. Today, we're talking about academic freedom, a topic that does not get the attention it deserves, mostly, I think, because it's not very well understood. Our guest is Alicia Polakiewicz. She currently works at the Global Public Policy Institute, a think tank in Berlin. Together with her colleagues, she currently tries to develop an index that will be able to measure academic freedom around the world. She will tell us all about it. Alicia also recently spent a year abroad, studying at the Yale NUS College in Singapore. Yale NUS is a liberal arts college founded by the US University Yale and the National University of Singapore. And it has recently been the center of an international debate on academic freedom in difficult contexts. Before we begin, full disclosure, I used to work for GPPI back in the day, and it is great to see the Academic Freedom Project taking the first concrete steps. But now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Alicia. There was a bit of controversy over the cancellation of a course this summer. Could you explain to us what this fuss was all about? Um, yes, so there was supposed to be a week-long academic project, which is called, or which was supposed to be called Dialogue and Descent, but that project was cancelled one week before it was supposed to begin. So just so you get the context, week seven is sort of a specific academic format, uh, which exists at Yale US College, and it's supposed to be a bit of a more hands-on approach to learning. So it's not your usual classroom interaction, but people usually go on excursions or, or travel. Mm. <clears throat> and Dialogue and Descent was supposed to be part of that sort of format. It was supposed to be led by Mr. Alephant Saad, who is a Singaporean playwright and also someone who is not a member of the Yale and US faculty, but someone who has taught on campus before. I think the previous semester he was doing a module on playwriting. Um, and so he designed the course. It was supposed to include screening documentaries, panel discussions. Um, there were external guests invited who were partly prominent dissidents uh, of Singaporean origin. Mm, so it was quite political in nature, no? Um, yeah, I think you could say so. But it was still meant to be an academic program because that's the purpose of the learning across boundaries, things that you sort of combine a practical approach, but also have sort of a, an academic perspective on it. Um, mm, and I it see. was supposed to unite these two things. Um, but you are right, that was actually a bit of a problem as well because one of the reasons why the course was cancelled was because the faculty felt that it was not academic enough, as in that the practical part was too much and the academical part was not rigorous enough or not good mm. enough in a sense. So was that the main reason why they decided to cancel it? Um, that was one of two reasons that they gave. Uh, the second reason was actually had to do with legal risk. So one of the program points of the program was a visit to the speaker's corner, which is in Singapore quite a special place. So it's the only place in Singapore where you can legally hold demonstrations, but you can only do so firstly when you get prior approval by the government, but secondly also only if you are a Singaporean citizen or a permanent resident. And the problem was that I think out of 13 people that were enrolled in the course, nine were international students. And as an international student, you're not allowed to do that at all. And if mm. you do that, um, you risk being detained by the police. You risk uh, that your visa will be uh, revoked. And so that could even mean that these students could not continue their studies at Yale and US College. So that was quite a considerable risk, I think. 
So just participating in class would have been a legal risk to students? Yeah, um, because in the beginning, the course was designed in a way that students would design protest signs. They would take them to the speaker's corner and uh, take photos with these signs. And that, of course, I mean, it's not a real protest. It was supposed to be a sort of staging of a protest. But from the outside, you can't really tell the difference. So there was a risk that this would result in police action. And I think that was one of the main concerns. And they then tried to revise the program and they made a few changes to it. But I think in the end, the faculty still felt that the risk was just too big. And then this is why they pulled it. At least that's what they say. <clears throat> and then pulling it, it sort of led to uh, criticism, obviously, from the student body. But there was also, um, as you mentioned in your article, uh, there were articles written in uh, the international press, the Washington Post, and sort of charges of um, that this is uh, a step against uh, academic freedom. And, um, and you pointed out in your article that there's not really a definition uh, of what academic freedom actually is. Um, but could you give us sort of a nice and easy clear-cut definition or does it not exist at all? Could you give us an idea of what it is? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a very difficult, but at the same time, very important question. So there's a lot of people who put a lot of thought into it. And I tried to do that as well. So I came up with a definition that I think captures the notion, which is what I can give you, but not really sort of a definition that everybody agrees on, because that just doesn't exist. But what I think captures the notion is if there are a couple of conditions that are fulfilled. So I would say the most important points are that on a campus or in a given institution, there are no topics that cannot be debated. There is no criticism that cannot be voiced. Academics are free to publish and disseminate their research. Academics and students can bring in exteriors at their own discretion and the campus is institutionally independent. So I think that these conditions, if you fulfill these, then it is probably safe to say that your institution is academically free. But as I said, I mean, this is only one possible definition. There's other people who, for example, say institutional autonomy is important, but it's not a notion of academic freedom because it's sort of more like a precondition, but not academic freedom itself. And what I think is also interesting is that some people say academic freedom is not just about rights, it's also about duties. So, mm -hmm. uh, for example, there are even people who think that um, taking a political stance as a university sort of goes against your academic freedom because in taking a political stance, you stop being objective. And as a university, your main mission is to produce knowledge. And if you're not objective, you can't really do that anymore. So by taking your, a political stance, you're sort of hindering your mission and you're hindering your own academic freedom in a way. Mm -hmm. So if we apply your definition that you just gave us to the situation in Singapore, wouldn't you say that sort of this um, preemptive obedience by by the the authorities inside the university, the, the director, um, isn't that sort of a, a hint at the fact that there is a, an issue there? You mean with the institutional autonomy part? Yes, exactly. Uh, I don't think so. I think actually pulling a course is something that is the prerogative of a university. Um, if they think it doesn't meet standards, then it's their right to say, no, we, we're not going to launch this course. And I think actually hmm. this might be the exact opposite. It might be a hint in the direction that there is something like institutional autonomy, because if you are able to decide which courses you launch and which courses you don't launch, then obviously you are independent in designing your academic curriculum. And that's a good sign, I would say. 
And uh, you yourself studied at this uh, campus in, in Singapore. In, in your personal experience, would you say that students and faculty staff at Yale NUS enjoy full academic freedom? Uh, yes, I would, I would say so, From based on my experience, of course. And I can really only talk as a student because that's the only perspective that I've experienced. But I mean, I remember classroom discussions where we discussed policies in a critical way, especially Singaporean government policies, for example, when it comes to laws on homosexuality, but also things like importing sand from Cambodia and sort of assessing what that means for Singapore, what that means for Cambodia and the region, and also assessing it from a very critical point of view. I mean, I remember watching films in class that were actually banned in the rest of the country, but because Yale NUS is sort of a sort of special bubble within it where you have more academically freedom, more academic freedom and more rights, um, mm. that was actually possible. The film was not allowed in the rest of Singapore because it actually, there is a rule that only a certain percentage of the language spoken in a film, if it is Chinese, can be a dialect that is not Mandarin. So if you have other dialects that are more uh, present in the film, the film will be censored. And that is because Singapore is trying to streamline Mandarin. Um, and that's why the film was not allowed to be shown in the rest of the country. But because I was in a class on Chinese literature and dialects are actually very important, we watched <laughs> this film and we actually even talked with the directors uh, who were invited to campus. So I, there was not a single instance that I would remember as where I felt that I was inhibited in my academic freedom mm. and I spent an entire year at Yale and US College. And I mean, for the faculty part, um, can't really speak from their perspective, but by from conversations that I've had with faculty, I got the sense that no one has ever really felt um, inhibited in their academic endeavors. Okay, well, but you just mentioned that, for example, some movies are banned in the country. Also, at Yale University campus, partisan political groups aren't allowed and, and protest is prohibited. And certainly operating a liberal arts college in such a restrictive environment sort of comes with a, with a price tag. So you have to compromise on your convictions if you want to work there. So do you think that academic freedom really is possible in such a context? And I'm not just talking about Singapore, but also, for example, the Gulf states or, I don't know, Egypt or, or China. Yeah, I, I think it is possible because I think that many times when we talk about academic freedom, we actually mix too many things together. So, of course, you are right in saying that the restrictive environment in Singapore is a special situation. But at the same time, I mean, banning partisan po politics from campus, that is not really special at all. Um, I would even say it's a fairly common practice. I mean, recently there was just the case where um, a German politician, Christian Lindner, who's the leader of the Free Democratic Party, was not allowed to book a room at the University of Hamburg. And that was because of that university's internal regulations of not allowing, oh, sorry, allowing partisan political events on campus. And I even think these rules can make a lot of sense in a, a lot of times. So um, that's not necessarily something I think that comes in the way of academic freedom. Then, of course, there's the question of political protests on campus and at Yale and U.S. College, they are technically banned. But at the same time, I mean, when I was there, I did witness mobilizations that I would call political protests. So, for example, when India decrim decriminalized homosexuality, uh, there were a few students who mobilized around this topic and who wanted to try to push Singapore to do the same. So there were 
information campaigns on campus. There were people trying to get signatures for certain petitions that would push for that. And I think that is a sort of political protest. So, of course, there are rules on the one hand, but then there's also what you do with them. And at least at Yale and US College, I think that um, the student body and the faculty have organized in a way to make it work um, in terms of academic freedom. Uh, it's interesting. I think, um, well, you just mentioned sort of the parallels between uh, Singapore and a country like Germany, where I think right now there's a lot of discussion about academic freedom. We had the, the whole thing about uh, Luca as well, uh, where there were huge protests. Um, but I do think sort of that uh, in a context such as Singapore, there are certain difficulties um, that might come up, as we've seen with a decision where they say, okay, we have uh, legal liabilities. We don't want our students to be exposed to risks, so we pull a class. So you sort of see that there are certain risks in play. Um, and I wonder what is the expected win for for uh, academic freedom on the side of an institution like Yale when they set up a, a university in in Singapore? What what do they expect to happen? Do they hope to uh, support academic freedom in that country? Mm, that's a really good question, and I think it's a bit difficult for me to answer that because obviously I will never really know the true motives behind Yale's decision yeah. to open up a campus in Singapore. So what I've heard a lot is that some people say that they did it purely for economic gain, for example. Um, and I think there may be some truth to that. Probably there is. But at the same time, I think that's an explanation that's a bit too easy. So mm -hmm. um, before Yale and US was opened, there was actually considerable criticism about this move by Yale. And I think opening such a venture, they also, that was, I mean, a risky move that they did. Uh, because they didn't know how it would play out. They didn't know how their reputation is going to suffer, maybe, under it. So um, to say that it was purely for economic gain, I think it's too much of a risky move to say that there was a huge financial incentive behind it. That's at least my interpretation of the situation. Um, what I can say, however, is um, what the faculty on campus are trying to do with that sort of institution. And I mean, a lot of the teachers that I talk to and a lot of the professors say that what they hope to achieve is sort of to carve out little spaces where critical thinking is possible in a country where otherwise it would not be possible, at least not in that way. And um, I think at least at Yale and US, they're, they're getting at something. And I think even just that is a huge win. Mm -hmm. But if they're trying to sort of carve out uh, spaces for critical thought, then pulling a seminar, a class on critical thought because of political risks, isn't that sort of like hitting the the glass ceiling? Well, I mean, of course, the political, the legal risks played a role, but I've been in classes that were critical. I mean, I've been in a class that was about inequality and it Uh, inequality and injustice, for example. And there we talked a lot about issues like, as I said, homosexuality, for example, which is a very critical issue in Singapore. So I don't think that if you had a class that would really engage academically with dialogue and dissent, I don't think that Yale and US would have pulled it. So mm -hmm. this engagement in the direction of critical thinking, I think it's possible. It was just about sort of the execution of it. Um, mm -hmm that people just felt, well, A, it's a risk, but B, it's also not really academic. I mean, staging a protest at the Speaker's Corner, what is the expected win in terms of academic thinking? Um, yeah, fair enough. 
So I think it's fair to say that even though they decided to pull the class based on legal risk and based on their assessment of academic rigor, they wouldn't necessarily cut all classes just because they have critical aspects to it. Actually, I think that these critical aspects are very much alive at the campus. I think sort of the, the narrative that I've seen in international media um, sees it a little bit differently. The Washington Post, for example, they published an article that actually ends with a quote by Linda Lim. She's a professor from Singapore and a Yale graduate herself. And she said that instead of Singapore becoming more like Yale in terms of academic freedom, it looks like Yale is becoming more like Singapore. And I get the feeling you don't agree with that statement. Am I right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay, could you explain why why you don't agree? Yeah, I mean, this quote operates on the assumption that cancelling the course was a violation of academic freedom. Um, and since I don't agree with that, I don't really agree with the entire quote. Um, I think, well, it's the problem with Yale and US College and also all these other sort of satellite campuses like NYU Abu Dhabi is that people a lot of times just mix them all together and say, okay, these are liberal arts colleges operating in a restrictive environment. This just can't be possible in a way, but they don't really look at the specific campuses. I mean, a lot of the international media that wrote about the cancellation of the course, they've never even stepped foot on that campus. So I think it's quite difficult for them, obviously for me as well, even though I was there to assess what really happened, because in the end we will never know, but Saying something like that, I think, is just really, it doesn't give the case enough attention to detail that I think it would deserve. Um, so I think there's two parts to the quotes. One is saying that Singapore is becoming... Uh, more like Yale. In more terms like of Yale, academic. yeah. Um, and that, through the presence of Yale and US in the, in the country, I think that is already difficult to say because Yale and US is such a bubble um, and as I, as I said, I think it's a space where they, uh, where critical thinking is possible, but at the same time, I find it really difficult to say whether that space is making waves outside of the campus gates, um, which obviously is sort of a goal, but also we have to be fair in saying that Yale and US is just really a very young institution. I think the first class graduated only in 2017. Um, so it's kind of difficult to say what the long-term effect of the presence of that campus in the country will be. And um, so I think that is already difficult to say. And then the second part of Yale becoming more like Singapore, I don't really see that at all. I mean, as I said, I think it was the institutional prerogative of Yale and US College to pull that course. And this decision of cancelling a class because they thought it was not academically up to the standards that they would like it to see. I don't see how that would have an effect on academic freedom at Yale University. And I also think that, well, the challenges that academic freedom faces in the US and the challenges that academic freedom faces in Singapore are just very different in nature. That doesn't mean that the challenges in the US are any less real, but I don't think you can just put them all together and mix them in this way. Even though you say that um, one has to differentiate, and obviously one has to, is there a sort of a lesson that can be learned um, for uh, academic uh, collaboration between countries that are more academically free uh, than others, if, if you can even say that? Mm. 
Yeah, I, I've thought about this as well. Um, I think it's very difficult to say again, because it's kind of a new project that emerged within the last decade. Um, but what I think we really should do is put academic freedom more in the center of discussion. So we should be prepared to answer the question, what happens if there is a true violation of academic freedom? And I feel like people are just not very willing to engage in that debate, maybe because they don't want to touch it, because they don't know what they will actually do. But this is sort of like the worst possible approach that you can have to these issues. Um, so I don't think there's an actual policy in place for cases such as that. Uh, and that's quite dangerous because once that happens, you have to be kind of quick in deciding what you're going to do now. And I think in the end, you even need to be prepared to pull out if, uh, from such a venture if you think that academic freedom is inhibited in such a way that you can't teach, that the university cannot operate in a way that you would like it to see. But of course, that's the most drastic thing that you can do, uh, even though I do think that you always should keep that option open. Um, but what I think are much easier things that you can do before that is just preparation. I mean, um, so I was a student at a French university and I spent my exchange year at Yale and U.S. College. And I remember before I went, there was close to no preparation with regards to academic freedom. So there was no one who told me this is the situation in the country, you should watch out for this and that, and if something happened, here's the person that you can report to. I mean, none of that is in place, really. Mm -hmm. Even when I came to Singapore, the first time that I heard that I really should not go to the speaker's corner, even not protesting or anything, because my mere presence there could be interpreted as sort of a demonstration. I've heard that, I think, two weeks in, so that's just wow. something that really needs to be regulated better, I think, and it's I mean, of course, it's we're old enough, sort of, we can read up on it, but I think it's an, a topic that is too important to be left to the personal discretion of students or even faculty that go there. Yeah, I agree. It's fascinating. Academic freedom is just another topic that is on many people's minds. I mean, I, I think it's changing right now, a little bit at least in Germany right now, it's being talked about, but generally speaking... Uh, a lot of people, as you said, they don't even know what it is. Mm. And um, and I think that's sort of the the problem at the base, you know, the, there's no real understanding of academic freedom. Um, but you are working on a project that is trying to change that, right? Um, could you explain a little bit uh, what you do at the Global Public Policy Institute? Could you give us a short description of the project and uh, what have been the main results so far? Um, yes, so as you said, there's very limited understanding of academic freedom, and that I think partly also is because there's very little comprehensive measurement of academic freedom levels across the world. So the centerpiece of the project at GPPI is um, creating that data and creating these measurements. So what we are trying to do in collaboration with varieties of democracy and scholars at risk is to assess levels of academic freedom Uh, through quantitative and qualitative ways. So on the quantitative side, um, there is five questions now included in the measurements by varieties of democracy that center on questions of academic freedom. So they cover notions like the freedom to research and teach, institutional autonomy, the freedom to criticize. And then there are country experts who will code um, replying to these questions based on their assessment of a certain country in a certain year. And once we pile all of this together, we can then um, better assess what academic freedom situations look like in different countries and across the world. Mm -hmm. And then complementary to that is uh, the qualitative side. So 
there will be case studies about certain countries. For now, there are three pilot projects um, for which we wrote research guidelines so that um, these research guidelines will then be handed to the experts who, based on these guidelines, will write uh, in-depth reports about the countries. And then you can have a much more in-depth sort of look into the countries. And the goal of this is to extend this to cover much more countries than just three. But for now, we've selected three pilot projects, like um, they will center on Russia, Ireland and Brazil, so that they will cover a quite broad range of possible academic freedom violations. For example, in Russia, you would probably think that state intervention plays a big role. But then in Ireland, business interference might be much more important when it comes to academic freedom. And we're sort of trying to capture all these different notions uh, by A, looking at it from a quantitative perspective and also looking from, at it from a qualitative perspective. And of course, all of that really involves a lot of thinking about what academic freedom actually means, because um, if you want to ask questions about it that then capture the notion, you really have to be careful what questions you ask and how you ask them. So a lot of time is also spent about thinking about these sort of conceptual things that stand behind it. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's a super important topic. I, for example, I found out yesterday, literally yesterday, I've been at my school for over a year, that my journalism school is sponsored by Google, basically. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Which I didn't know. Um, anyway, thank you so much for, for sharing your insights, Alicia. It was really, really nice to have you here in our small podcast project. Um, and yeah, yeah talk to you Yeah, thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks also to Alicia for being with us. Come back next time and subscribe on iTunes, give us a rating and check out our website at policycorner.org. Also check out the Academic Freedom Project at GPPI's website at gppi.net. See you next time.